following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. The year is A.D. 62. The Apostle Paul is writing from prison in Rome to a church that he helped start in Greece in a city called Philippi. In fact, it's a city uh, in present day, as I mentioned, northeast Greece, and it's the first city in modern-day Europe where Paul established a church. He's communicating in this letter, as we've already seen over the last couple of weeks, he's communicating his, his deep love for them, his prayers for them, his hopes for them. And in our passage this morning, he's going to continue calling them to embrace hardship together. Here's what I think is the main idea of the verses we just heard read, the main idea of Philippians 1, 27 to 30. And the reason I give you a main idea uh, is so that you will be ruined for anything less at other churches you go to. Now, I don't, mean, I don't mean every church has to explicitly give the main idea, but I do mean to say that every faithful church is going to be seeking to make the main point of the passage the main point of the message. If, if you're not in a church where the main idea of the passage is the main idea of the message, uh, if the passage is more, more like a, a, a diving board, a springboard into something else, then you need to find a different church. Uh, not necessarily this one, but one that proclaims the meaning of God's word as it unfolds. And so just as a, a, a way of disciplining myself to ensure that I'm not trying to be more creative than God, that I'm communicating what he has for us in his word, I try to give a main idea that encapsulates what I think is the main idea of the message. And so this morning, here's what I think it is. Live as kingdom citizens by standing firm and suffering well. That's what I think Paul is communicating in these four verses. Live as kingdom citizens by standing firm and suffering well. We're going to think about that in two very simple points. Stand firm and suffer well. So live as kingdom citizens by standing firm and suffering well. Point one, stand firm. We'll see that in verses 27 and 28. And point two, suffer well. Verses 29 and 30. First, stand firm. Verse 27. Whatever happens, Paul writes, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, this is a command, and here's what's interesting. It's the first one in the letter, the very first command. For 26 verses, Paul has been speaking words of greeting and commendation and prayer and personal perspective, but not imperative. 
at least not until now. And it's significant then. It's significant that this is the first one, the first command. The opening phrase there, whatever happens, whatever happens has to do in context with whether or not Paul's going to be able to be with them in person. That is to say, as we think about what this means for us, that is to say, your circumstances, he's saying to the the Philippians and to us, your circumstances don't determine how you get to act. Christ determines that. Your circumstances are simply the arena in which God has placed you, the arena in which God has deployed you to bring glory to him. So whatever happens is the backdrop, the, the atmosphere for the command. Here's the command. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. The word here behind conduct yourselves is the same word from which we get polis or city-state. The, the image is one of citizenship. Live as citizens worthy of the gospel. See, Philippi was a Roman colony. It was conquered by Augustus Caesar, became a Roman colony. This became a source of pride for the Philippians because it was like you took a piece of Rome and just plopped it down in northeast Greece. They got to be right there in Greece, an official outpost of the most powerful empire in the history of the world, which means Paul here is being a bit subversive. He's saying, Philippians, here's the first command I've got for you. Exercise your citizenship. No, not your Roman citizenship, your ultimate citizenship. Your ultimate citizenship. He's going to return to this theme in chapter 3, verse 20, when he will insist, but our citizenship is in heaven. In other words, you're not just citizens of this world. You're also citizens of a new world, and you need to behave like it. And we need to hear this too. We need to be reminded of this too. I mean, just imagine for a moment A man on an overnight business trip who checks into a hotel, goes to his room, and rather than ordering some takeout and taking off his shoes and seeing what's on TV, he puts down some drop cloth, pulls out his painter's tape, and starts painting the walls. He's got his level and his, his picture frames lined up for when the paint dries, Many of you are smirking because you know it's ridiculous. This kind of thing wouldn't happen, and yet that's exactly what we do. That's exactly what we do when we treat passing things as if they are our forever home. Every time we try to invest our ultimate focus, our best energy in what is temporary, we make a choice that is every bit as foolish and short-sighted is trying to renovate a hotel room at the Holiday Inn. Ancient Philippi, modern-day Richmond, these are just short-term, short-term places of residence. Oh, beware, Paul is saying, beware of growing so comfortable here that you forget where you're going. He's summoning us to, to so anticipate, so anticipate our true homeland, our ultimate destination, that it changes everything about the journey along the way. No matter what happens, he says, no matter what happens, conduct yourselves, exercise your kingdom citizenship. How? In a manner 
worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, what does that mean? Well, think about it this way. When we're talking about, say, the president of the United States, we speak of the president in two different ways, with two different meanings. Sometimes when we speak of the president, we're referring to a person. Joe Biden is number 46. Other times, though, we're not referring to a person. We're referring to an office of which there is only one. See, the office has an objective dignity regardless of the occupant. The office is greater than any one individual, and it's his job, or maybe in the future, her job to respect and reflect the high dignity of their office. But friends, there is an office even more distinguished, even more towering, even more magnificent than the office of president of the United States, and that is the office of Christian, the office of church member. If you belong to a church, to an embassy of the high king of heaven, which is what a church is, just like America has embassies on foreign soil representing our nation, heaven has embassies on planet earth representing that heavenly kingdom, and they're called local churches. And if you belong to Christ, if you belong to a church, an embassy of the kingdom, then you have been installed into a royal office. And Paul wants to make eye contact with us again this morning. He wants to make eye contact with us and say, conduct yourselves in a manner, conduct yourselves in a way that reflects the dignity of the office you hold and the glory of the name you bear. When he uses this word worthy in verse 27, it's important to be clear on what he's not saying. When he, when he says live worthy of, he, he's not saying make yourselves worthy of the gospel. He's saying live as if the gospel is true, as if it's worthy of your highest allegiance. There's just no way around this. So often we wish there was, but there's no way around the fact that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of free grace, makes demands on your life. And don't flatter yourself. Be, be careful of just kind of flattering yourself, comforting yourself, and thinking, well, I've got some Jesus in my life. He's on the table. He's not interested in being a side dish. As Don Carson has observed, the New Testament does not offer a lot of encouragement for people who want just enough Christianity to be, to be saved. Just enough Christianity to be saved. See, see, there are good questions to ask and there are bad questions to ask. We all know that. And when it comes to salvation, when it comes to the Christian life, when it comes to the demand of the gospel, the best question you could ever ask is the same one that the Philippian jailer asked back in Acts chapter 16, what must I do to be saved? That's a great question. That's the ultimate question. What must I do to be saved? And after you've answered that, after you've turned away from your sin and put your trust in Christ, the next really good question you should ask is, what must I do because I'm saved? But you should never, ever look the Lord of the universe in the eye and ask, what can I do and still be saved? 
And speaking of being saved, I don't assume that everyone in this room knows exactly what that means or knows the meaning of this little phrase in verse 27, the gospel of Christ. We exist as a church for for a lot of reasons, but above all, it is to, as I prayed earlier, not just to get the gospel right, but to get it out. And what we want to get out, what we want to get right is this amazing news that is broken into our world and into our lives. And it's the news that God loves rebels. See, sin is not just a minor thing. It's just not being on, it's, it's not just being on God's naughty list because we've, we've failed to keep the Ten Commandments. No, at heart level, sin is a form of rebellion and idolatry because we have all turned away from God and sought to live for other things and to build our life around other things and treated him as a side dish. Easy to access when it's convenient, but also easy to ignore. But God is overqualified to be a side dish in your life, and treating him as one means that we all deserve to be judged. We all deserve to be separated from him forever. But the glory of the gospel, the amazing news that rings forth from the pages of the Bible is that that wasn't the end of the story. God didn't leave us in our state of ruin. He came to bring us out. He came in the person of Jesus to live a perfect life, to die a death in the place of sinners, absorbing the punishment that was due to them for their rebellion and idolatry. And three days later, he vacated his tomb. He defeated death so that anyone who turns away from their sin and puts their trust in him can have the hope and the confidence that one day they're going to rise right along with him into everlasting resurrection life. If you want to know more about what it means to to be saved, about the answer to that really good question, what must I do to be saved, or what must I do because I'm saved, or if you're convicted because if you're honest, you've been living your life asking the question, what can I do and still be saved? We would love to talk to you about that. I'll be standing at the door after the service. There are people all around this room who would love to talk to you about the hope that they have found in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So the first command in the letter and the dominant command in this passage is conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Middle of verse 27, then, then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, in other words, whether or not there's an apostle looking over your shoulder, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. So just to remind you of where we are in in the unfolding argument of this letter, the, the flow and the movement of this letter and how this fits, when there is unity of affection, remember that in verses three to 11, and unity of aspiration, which we looked at last week in verses 12 to 26, it will lead to unity of action. Gospel affection plus gospel aspiration produces gospel action as God's people stand together and strive together as one. And when a church is doing this, 
when a church is doing this, especially among people who have no natural reason to be unified. It's nothing short of a miracle, which is why I think the Trinity makes another cameo here. We, we saw the Trinity last week, Father, Son, and Spirit, explicitly mentioned in verse 19, and they're here again, Son and Spirit in verse 27, God the Father in verse 28. Standing firm in the one spirit means that he, the third person of the eternal Godhead, is empowering the Philippians and empowering us to do that very thing, to stand firm. The implication, of course, I mean, if if we need omnipotent help, the implication is that it's not going to be easy. It's not even going to be possible to stand apart from him. And the standing is going to lead to striving. Now, this, this might be a little confusing because these are two different word pictures, right? Paul talks about standing and he talks about striving. Standing seems stationary, passive. Striving seems, uh, striving implies movement and, and work. Paul wants us to see that these two things, these two images actually do fit together because so much of striving faithfully boils down to standing firm. We're familiar, of course, with the phrase, don't just stand there, do something. Maybe if you're a parent, you've hollered that in the last week. Hopefully not to your spouse, to your kids. (laughs) Don't just stand there, do something. When Al Mohler became president of, of Southern Seminary in Louisville 30 years ago, he was, uh, if you know anything about uh, denominational history, uh, the school's history, you'll know that he was facing strong headwinds of theological compromise in the denomination and at the school. In fact, there were many professors on the payroll teaching with a straight face that we can't be expected in the 21st century to still take this book very seriously, to believe that all of it is true. Some professors were denying the resurrection, even the Trinity. There was a lot of feverish focus on ministry, on activity, but very little premium placed on theology. There were protests on campus. Uh, It was a wild atmosphere because people were just aghast that someone with such outdated theology, historic Christian theology that, that surely is passe for sophisticated modern people, would be there trying to take leadership of the school. Well, on August 31st, 1993, Moeller stood up to deliver his inaugural convocation address. The title, Don't Just Do Something, Stand There. Stand there, because the most important thing is not how many students you graduate or books you publish or programs you start. It's whether you keep the faith. And if that's true for a parachurch organization like a seminary, how much more for the very organization that Jesus has attached his very reputation to, to which he has promised ultimate success in saying the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Friends, shared fellowship and shared unity is only as deep as shared beliefs. Shared fellowship and shared unity is only as deep as shared beliefs. I'm not 
reducing it to that. Fellowship and unity is a lot more than your theology. But it's not less. If there is no agreement on what verse 27 calls the faith of the gospel, then you don't have real unity. But this unity, though though it's God-given, it's it's important to remember it doesn't just happen. You you can't just have the right statement of faith and be proud of what you believe. Oh, we have the right statement of faith. We're good. We're just going to automatically have the kind of unity that pleases God. No, it takes work to stand together. I mean, the reason that giant redwood trees in California are so towering, so soaring, so strong is because of something that's happening beneath the surface of the soil that we can't even see. The redwoods are so strong because their roots interweave and interlock with one another. Brothers and sisters, if we are going to stand firm in the Spirit, then we must stand together, which means we must interlock our lives. An individual Christian can be a living illustration of gospel power, yes, but their potential impact can't hold a candle to a group of Christians, a church of Christians locking arms for the good of the world, even in ways that don't make sense to the world, such as remaining courageous and even cheerful in the face of attack. I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Verse 28, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. The word frightened there was used in the ancient world to refer to horses startled in battle. Paul's saying, don't be that way. Don't panic as if the sky is falling. You will face opposition. The question is not whether you'll face it, it's how. So start preparing yourselves now. And then Paul says, this is a sign to them. What's the this he's referring back to? Well, well, the this is the, the united front of the Philippians' faith. And that standing together and striving together, that gospel unity, Paul says, is a form of evidence. It's a sign to gospel opponents that they will be destroyed. It's interesting, isn't it? That, that this idea that our standing together could prove to an opponent that it's not going to go well for them in the end. There's something about your standing together, our standing together, Paul is saying, that should say, that should shout, this wouldn't be possible or explainable apart from the God you deny. This wouldn't be possible or explainable apart from him. He loves to do it. He loves to unify people. And unless you repent and come to him in faith, the same power that unifies us will be laser aimed at you in judgment. This is not the kind of stuff that I would make up. That's why I said at the beginning of the sermon, my job is just to bind myself to what the word of God says. This is not the funnest thing in the world to preach, but it's what Paul and what God wants us to hear this morning. It's worth noting here that that Paul isn't referring 
in the immediate context to all non-believers, but specifically to those opposing the gospel and opposing the church. But the principle does apply more broadly in the sense that the, the, the church's corporate witness, our corporate witness, even on Sundays, can be, can function as a sign of judgment and means of conviction. Where am I getting that from? Listen to how Paul addresses the church in Corinth about their gathered worship. So this is 1 Corinthians 14. Paul is talking to a local church, just like ours, about their gatherings on Sundays. And he says, 1 Corinthians 14, 24 and 25, but if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes into your gathering while everyone is prophesying, that is speaking the truth in a way that's understandable, if they, if they come in, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their heart are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Oh, I pray that, that this would happen on Sundays here. The, the outsiders would come in and be cut to the heart with the truth of God's word. That, again, I've said, I already said it. This is why, though, in case you're wondering, what, this is why we feature God's word so prominently in our services, because we believe that's the most loving thing we can offer our non-believing friends. That's the most loving thing because that's what they need. They don't need another place to be entertained. They have enough of those. They need a place that will love them enough to expose them to the sound of God's voice so that perhaps for the first time in their life, here in the gathered worship of God's people, they could fall on their faces, or at least in their hearts, they can bow before the Lord and say, oh, I, I knew about religion, but until now, I had never experienced God. And my life will never be the same. But our, our corporate unity, Paul, is saying to the Philippians, it's not just a sign of judgment, it's also a sign of assurance. See that? This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. In other words, our ability to stand has the effect of galvanizing our own faith because we know that it's a divine miracle. We don't have the power in ourselves to stand at all, much less stand together. I, I'm reminded of Paul's image in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 where, where he says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay, this treasure in jars of clay to show that the all-surpassing power is from God, not from us. You know what he's talking about there? The treasure is the gospel. The clay jars... <laughs> that house the treasure, you know who that is? That's you and me as believers. And think about the logic of that, of what Paul is saying. If the treasure of the gospel were housed in something beautiful like fine china, or if it were housed in something strong like iron, then it would be very easy for a watching world to conclude that the all-surpassing power belongs to us, not to God. But we're not impressive 
containers. We're not iron. We're not fine china. We, we are pots of dirt, brittle and plain. And yet as believers and as a church, we have something residing in us. You realize this, don't you? Again, it's not based on how you feel this morning. I don't care how sluggish your heart is. If you belong to Jesus, this is true of you. You have something residing in you that is worth more than all the jewels beneath the earth. Everywhere you go, you are transporting treasure. No wonder that you and we as churches, no wonder that we are under siege. Stand firm. Number two, suffer well. Suffer well. Verse 29, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you were going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. It has been granted granted to you. That is, God has given you two things for the sake of Christ, faith and suffering. See it there? Don't take my word for it. Look at verse 29. It's been granted to you to believe in him, and it's been granted to you to suffer for him, and both are counterintuitive to us. I mean, first of all, we tend to think of faith as the thing that we bring to the table, right? I mean, God produces the God stuff. God produces the grace. God produces the forgiveness. But surely it's up to us to bring along the faith. But here, the Bible, as it so often does, confronts our misconceptions. Are you willing to let the Bible confront and correct your misconceptions? Faith is not fundamentally something we give to God. It's something He gives to us. Don't mishear me. I'm not saying God believes for us. I'm saying God enables us to believe. Here's how our church's statement of faith puts it. Quote, repentance and faith, repentance and faith, are sacred duties as well as inseparable graces. Graces, that is, gifts from God. The idea that faith is a gift, maybe that's new to some of you. Don't assume it's limited to Philippians 1.29. No, the idea that faith is a gift shows up elsewhere. I'll just, I'll just take off three real quickly. Romans 12, don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Ephesians 2, this will sound familiar. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one can boast. First Timothy chapter one, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the 
faith. So Paul's talking about things that God has poured out on him abundantly. And he mentions grace, and then he says, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So it's not just grace that descends from God and love that descends from God. It's also the very faith that we need in order to be saved and to endure to the end. If you're trust, I mean, this is not just an interesting theological factoid. This can make all the difference practically in your life. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ, then that means that he, not you, he gets all the credit and the glory. As it's been said, the only thing you contributed to your salvation was the sin that made it necessary. Your heart was so dead, so unresponsive, so flatlined, so incapable of exercising faith that God had to show up and grant it. Oh, this should make us humble. And this should keep us grateful. I mean, we are no better, as I said earlier, we are no better in ourselves than, than those who don't believe. I mean, it's not like, I mean, I wonder what you think is the difference between, finally, the difference between people in heaven and people in hell. Well, I'll tell you, it, it, the difference is not, finally, that the people in heaven were just a little bit smarter, a little bit wiser, a little bit better. Maybe they had a spiritual streak that the people in hell didn't. No, the difference in the final analysis is nothing beyond gospel grace. See, if there were a difference in us, if the people in heaven were just a little bit smarter, wiser, better, then there would actually be room for boasting. But friends, God will get all the applause, not 99% of it as if he came almost all the way but left the rest to us. No, when we were spiritual corpses, he intervened. He came all the way. We, had, we were submerged on the bottom of the ocean. Or we, were, we were drowned on the bottom of the ocean, and he submerged himself and came all the way down to raise us up. Unilateral, one-way grace. God gets 100% of the glory forever and ever. Amen. But faith in Christ is not the only thing God generously grants. If we're honest, we kind of wish Paul would move on to chapter 2 now so I could close in prayer and that we wouldn't have to reckon with this. There's a second gift, and it's not an easy one to unwrap and receive. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ to suffer for him. To suffer for him. Our standing and striving is not just about sharing theology. It's also about sharing pain. This is the link back to verse 28. The thing that will most compel the world, that will most compel non-believers, is not the sight of Christians standing firm together under clear skies. That's not a very impressive sight. It's Christians keeping the faith, keeping the faith, keeping the faith, even as they suffer for it. It's seeing that persecution 
with these Christians. This is what amazed the, the earliest, the, the, the ancient world, the Roman world. They saw that the more they persecuted Christians, the more that persecution just acted like a nail to drive them deeper into the heart of Christ. Remember the story in, in Acts 5 about the apostles. Some of you remember that? The apostles getting arrested for preaching, proclaiming Jesus. Acts 5, 40 and 41. The Jewish leaders called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. Okay, that's not the word we're expecting. Not panicking, not cowering. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And if you know the story of Acts, you know what happened next. The word of God spread. Few things have more potential explosive impact than when Christians endure persecution with cheerful courage. A couple centuries later, after the apostles in in the year 258, it's not often you get to hear about something that happened in 258, but here we go. There was a deacon named Lawrence who was serving in Rome. His, His task as a deacon, was to oversee the church's money, church's money, the church's distributions to the poor. Well, one day in August, 258, the sky went dark for Christians. The the emperor, the Roman emperor, decreed that all pastors and deacons must be round up and killed. Sure enough, Lawrence himself is taken before the magistrate, But instead of the sound of a sword, Lawrence hears something surprising. He hears an offer, a special offer for him. And here's what's said to him. Surrender the treasures of the church and you will be freed. Surrender the treasures of the church and you will be freed. And immediately Lawrence agrees. He only asks for three days to retrieve it and then return. Leaving the court, he wastes no time. Lawrence entrusts the church's money to safe hands, and then he gathers together the sick, the poor, the widowed, the orphaned. On the third day, he returns to the court with this pitiful band in tow. The magistrate is incensed by the sight, by the commotion, and he demands an explanation. Lawrence calmly responds, Sir, I have brought what you asked for, what you asked for. And then gesturing to those with him, he says, These are the treasures of the church. He's sentenced, unsurprisingly, to a martyr's death. He endures the flames with amazing calm, even quipping to his executioners, You may turn me over. I'm done on this side. This spectacle, I don't know another word for it, this spectacle of profound courage is just one of many examples in the early church of what made such an impression on that ancient Roman world, and it led to many conversions. 
And such persecution still occurs. You know, we don't have to reach back to the year 258. Let's just talk about, I don't know, 2022. Every year, the Christian organization, Open Doors, publishes what they call a world watch list, ranking the countries where it's most dangerous to belong to Christ. I mean, do you realize that there have been more Christian martyrs in the last two centuries than in the previous 18. Today, one in seven Christians worldwide are persecuted. One in seven directly targeted, disadvantaged, attacked for their faith. One in seven worldwide. It's one in five in Africa. It's two in five in Asia. According to Open Doors calculations, last year, at least 5,600 Christians around the world were murdered. 2,100 churches were attacked. 4,500 believers were detained because of reasons related to their faith. 2023's list just came out. It was just released. And the most dangerous countries that appear on it are many of them familiar to those of us who are aware of the plight of the persecuted church, but it's sobering to hear the names in the top 10. North Korea, Somalia, Yemen, Entria, Libya, Nigeria, Pakistan, Iran, Afghanistan, Sudan. At this point, and I think it's okay to praise God for this, we don't show up on the list. America's not even in the, the, the top 50, which is, which is what they record, which means that the way we in Richmond, Virginia, this morning, apply a passage like this, I think is at least by means of prayer and preparation. We have to pray and we have to prepare. Pray for churches in countries on this list and prepare for the day when we might be too. I mean, we shouldn't long for that day, but we also shouldn't flee it or resent it when it comes because the whole witness of the Bible in, of Christian history is that the darker things get, the clearer the light of the gospel can shine. Suffering with a kind of buoyant courage is the ultimate apologetic for the faith. I mean, it means that we're walking in the footsteps of apostles. That's what verse 30 is all about. Paul's connecting their suffering to his own, and ultimately we're walking in the footsteps of our nail-scarred king. Members of RCBC, let's not forget in our daily lives, let's not forget the final promise that we make to one another in our church covenant that we recite every time we stand to say it, and through life, whatever opposition may come, right now, when we recite our church covenant, it's very easy to say that line. But I often think, is there going to come a day when it's going to be hard to say that? And through life, whatever opposition may come, we will live for the glory of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Again, we shouldn't pursue conflict or provoke conflict, but we shouldn't be shocked when it comes, 
If we're faithful, surely in the years to come, we, RCBC, will face opposition for what we believe. And if we want to be a compelling counterculture, an attractive witness to our Richmond neighbors whom we love, then we will need to stand firm even when it's hard. And if we're going to be able to stand firm, we're going to have to stand together. As Jesus prayed in John 17 for all believers, Father, I have given them the glory you gave me that they may be one as we are one, so that they may be brought to complete unity then, that is, as a result of their unity, as a result of their oneness, here's what happens. The world will know that you sent me and have loved me, have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus prayed for it. Jesus bled for it. Jesus secured it. It's our job to lean into it and live into it. Well, in conclusion, if in last week's passage, if you remember verses 12 to 26, if in that passage Paul was focusing on how the gospel is advancing, here he's focusing on how the gospel can be adorned, how it can be adorned, how we conduct ourselves as kingdom citizens, how we stand, how we strive, how we suffer, all of it will do one of two things. It will either beautify the faith we profess or it will detract from it. What an opportunity we have. What an opportunity we have as a church to rise up together, to rise to the occasion. And the reason we can do so, the reason that we can live into this high and holy office and calling, that we can walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, is because we don't have to blaze the trail. All we have to do is follow in the footsteps of the one who did. Jesus Christ could have lived out his days in relative obscurity up in Galilee. And if he had done so, if he had lived out his days in relative safety and obscurity, we would have never heard his name. But there are churches all around the world gathered on this Lord's Day to celebrate him precisely because he didn't stay in Galilee, but he set his face south to Jerusalem. And he walked that long Calvary road. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. There is only one person in history who has lived the victorious Christian life, and it's not me. It's not you. It's the one they named the thing after. Oh, this is good news for us because it doesn't mean we have to pioneer our own path to God or to the good life. No, all we have to do again, friends, all we have to do is just simply cling to the one who's already blazed the trail and follow in his steps. But if we're going to make it, beloved, if we're going to make it home where he is, then we are going to have to stand and strive together. We're going to have to need each other. So let's stand firm and suffer well so that the light and the beauty of our Savior can shine through us in Richmond and to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would prepare us as a church even now in this time of 
relative freedom and peace and even support, Lord, we pray that we would be prepared and ready for the day when we will have the privilege of being counted worthy to suffer disgrace for the name. Oh Lord, we pray that you would help us as a church to stand firm and to suffer well and trust your timing, trust your providence, trust your heart, and trust your love every step of the way. And we praise you that you will not send us anywhere that you have not gone first. It's in the beautiful name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.